I don't know if very many of you have had the experience of driving in your car and singing, singing loud, and what that looks like. I've seen some people like that. When you drive by somebody and they are just singing with all their heart and they are going to town thinking nobody's watching and then you kind of see them. I wonder if that might be what it looks like. I would hope that might be what, it's look, what it looks like for someone who comes into our church family here and in our presence and sees people here singing. How beautiful, what wonderful songs. And I hope you have something to sing about. And it, 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 the second to the last verse, I think it was there, maybe third to the last, is when, when you can't contain it anymore, when you just have to, when you have to do this. That's a beautiful demonstration of us worshiping together corporately. And I hope that you have something that is beautiful to sing about today. As we go to God's word and continue our series in the book of Acts, would you bow your head with me? We'll ask for God's help and wisdom. Father, we come to you begging for the clear teaching and instruction of your word. We thank you that you did not make any mistakes when you put it together. And we praise you for the follower of Jesus Christ, for the presence of the Holy Spirit, not just here in our midst as we join for worship, but as our teacher. And I, and I, I covet that, Father, you know. And I've already on this day begged that people would be receiving your word. They would have ears to hear and that I would not get in the way. We thank you for this time to study, to worship through your word. Would you please be clearly involved here in this place? And we pray these things in your beautiful son's name, in Jesus' name, amen. At the risk of being controversial right at the start, let me go ahead and begin a certain way. It is not unusual for uh, sometimes me to say something that might be debatable. And so, let me just go ahead and begin in this way. It may surprise some of you to hear that we live in a world that appreciates Judeo-Christian values. That might be a controversial statement. There are some individuals that could talk about that and debate it even for hours on end. A world that enjoys, I would put it this way, reaping the benefits of individuals like you and me that are obeying the laws of our country. The laws that were based primarily upon the laws of the Old Testament. They will reap these benefits and they're okay with you having those beliefs and those principles for the most part. They like that. Doesn't it make you better citizens, right? They like you paying your taxes and being honest so they can drive on the roads and we can have a good military. No doubt about it. But if your beliefs about God's word, this is where I think the debate goes away. If your beliefs about God's word begin to impose upon them, they begin to press their way into their life. Maybe what someone who they would deem more enlightened than you or than God's word would call wrong and right. That's where we run into conflict. That's where they cannot sit by and let you continue to have that if you're going to try to press it upon them or take away somebody else's rights or privileges. There are a lot of different moral codes that people can choose to live by. That's no secret. There are many philosophies that if you want to, you can adopt as a part of your life. 
There are many more ways out there than just Jesus Christ. He's not the only path that individuals have to take. My personal opinion is he's the best one. There's nothing out there better than Jesus Christ, but many people have many different paths. I have the opportunity a couple times a year to preach in the local jail, and that's always a memorable experience. And um, you might have a certain thought if you've never been in a setting like that, and I know we have um, some from our church family here that have been in a setting like that, one that goes and does Bible studies. When I go and preach to this group of people at the jail, it's not going in there and, I mean, you're around a whole bunch of people and you're just preaching hellfire and brimstone to get them saved. That's not the idea. Many of these guys know Jesus Christ and they know him well. And they're there to worship. And you t- I mean, we had great singing here this morning, but, I mean, they are just singing their guts out in that jail there. And as I talk with individuals and as you're preaching and they're just soaking it in and many of them are reading, they're reading the Bible a whole lot more than you and me because they got a lot of time on their hands to do that. They do. I talked with one individual after a preaching session and he was very open to talking and wanting to interact with me. And I asked the question that sometimes is a hard question to ask and some of you will know that this is hard. I asked the question that I thought was appropriate. Are you a Christian? I kind of assumed he was by the way he was talking. And here was his answer to me. I'm not a Christian, but I'm very spiritual. I'm a very spiritual person. And people say that to us because they think this is a, an, an acceptable response. I'm not a Christian like you, one of those Jesus followers or Bible believers, but I'm a very spiritual person. And so you should appreciate that. It's kind of in their tone when they let you know that. Today, many people would say I'm a very spiritual person. We're going to find a word in our text today that uses the word, it's the word religious. There are very religious people. It's the same kind of idea, I believe. In my son's AP World History class, they were studying the religions of the world. And he came to me with a comment about our faith system that stood out to him. He said, you know, of all the faith systems and the religions of the world that we've looked at, there was something different about Christianity because Christianity was one of the few that has a main priority of getting other people to leave what they believe and believe what you believe. And I said, yeah, the big word for that is proselytizing. A lot of folks look down upon proselytizing. Get others to buy into your faith, to have what you have if you know Jesus Christ. As we look at God's word today, I want to go ahead and at the end, oftentimes we'll have some kind of a, of a what you can do. And I'm going to go ahead and give you that right up front and then we'll cover it again at the end. It's my prayer as we approach this passage of scripture that you're going to see the importance of having an inner longing for others to know Jesus Christ. And this will change our church. This will change your world. It might even make your world a little bit uncomfortable at times. This will make such a difference when there's something inside of you that wants others to know your God. So it's my prayer that you'll see the importance of having that inner longing for others to know God. It's also my prayer that you will have a confidence that as you are faithful in what you're going to do, that God adds his blessing. God clearly is involved. And you know you can't save anybody. You can be faithful in giving the gospel. But if you know God's word and you've seen him work, you understand that you have to approach that with an understanding that God's going to do what he does. And at the very end of our text, we're gonna see the variety 
of how God works when we are faithful in giving out the gospel. If you're not already there, turn to Acts chapter 17, please. Acts 17 is where we'll be as we continue today. And I'm going to break this sermon down easy note-taking. If you're a note-taker, there is a spot on the back of your bulletin and a pencil in the pew rack in front of you. If you want to take notes, a pretty simple outline today. Everything is based on this sermon, this very famous sermon that we find in Acts 17. And so first of all, we're going to look at the need for the sermon. What was the need for this sermon that the Apostle Paul would preach? Now in his journey, Paul finds himself at this time in the city of Athens, I appreciate the work that the office did. They put a map of Athens right in your bulletin and they, and they, or uh, of the world and they highlighted where Athens was. That's helpful for us. Most everybody here likely has heard of the city of Athens. It was the center of religion and education of many, many years ago. Athens was famous for having many great thinkers come through there. In fact, we'll recognize the names Socrates and Plato and Aristotle, all of these were products of Athens. The great thinkers of their day would migrate here. And it was recognized as the center of religion and education, and yet it was still so incredibly hungry because they didn't have an answer that satisfied. For the most part, they did not know the religion, if you will, that would give them satisfaction, that would lead them to having peace in this world. And as Paul goes to Athens, there's something different. This is interesting. I challenge us on a regular basis not to get too hung up on just one thing that happens in the book of Acts because sometimes people like to see one method or one way and then everything's got to be that way. And if we learn anything from the book of Acts, well, hopefully we'll learn several things, but one of those lessons is going to be that they didn't do it the same way all the time. And there's something unique about this time when the Apostle Paul is in Athens. And the thing that's unique is he's by himself here. Paul had a missionary team on the first journey, and that team changed on his first missionary trip. Now he's on his second missionary trip, but he doesn't have a support team with him, so it's different. And if you've been with us for this study, do you think that the Apostle Paul having that support team with him, do you think that was a helpful thing for him? I mean, how many times did they, you know, beat him and drag him out of town and arrest him? Aren't you glad in your walk with God that you have somebody just kind of whispering in your ear, keep going, don't quit? I think the team was extremely important to Paul, and yet here in Athens he finds himself alone. And I don't think he was active right away like he typically was. I wonder if there was some kind of arrest that he had in mind As he approaches this, I don't know. It doesn't seem like he really wanted rest too much. But it seems that he was quiet for at least a little while. Paul is waiting for Luke to come from Philippi. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to come from Berea. And Paul finds himself having, I've already talked about this, he's having an inner struggle as he's waiting in Athens to the point where he cannot hold it in. He can't keep it to himself. Look, at, look with me starting in verse 16 of Acts 17. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So, class, if I can give you that title today, what, what, where was Paul or Paul's first practice to go whenever he went to a new city? He always went to the what? To the synagogue. That was his practice, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. So we see that he goes first to the synagogue here. And then he moves on and he goes somewhere else. He goes to the Epicureans and to the Stoics. Look at verse 17 and 18 with me. So he has this, um, verse 16 says he has this inner, um, he's provoked inwardly. Verse 17, so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Look at the different groups. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So he first speaks in the synagogue and then he goes to the Epicureans and to the Stoics. We're not going to go a whole lot into these different religious groups that were there, but I will tell you this, they were on the opposite end of the spectrum as far as what they believed. And yet, don't miss this, this is going to come into play. And yet, they could still be in the same place and they could still get along because they did not insist upon imposing their beliefs on the other group who was the polar opposite of them. They could still get along. That's important for us to remember because Paul's going to give a very, very different message. The word Epicurean today gives us the idea of the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of fine living. Maybe you, or you're familiar with that word. And he's called a name here. Did you catch it? He's called a babbler. A babbler. When we look to the Greek, this word literally means a seed picker, which I don't know if that helps or not really, but when you get into the details of it, it's very interesting. The word seed picker talks, it's referring to a crow, a bird that would fly into a marketplace and would come down and would pick things up that would fall in the marketplace. And so that bird would fly over, look for things that have fallen, and they would get them and the bird would live that way. And there's an implication here. So it's not an accident that they call him babbler. When they call him a seed picker, this picture, the idea is this, he is one who had some exposure to some different religions or different beliefs, and he had picked up just a little bit of several of those to where he can speak intelligently about it. Does that make sense? He had been around a few different groups. He had picked up some things, and these few things that he picks up, they, some of them said, not all of them, but some of them, they say, now he comes in here and he's trying to make himself to be something that he's not. We might use the word um, plagiarism today, that he was a plagiarist. He took someone else's work and pawned it off as his own. When I was studying through this, the word poser came to my mind. Someone who's a poser. He's not real. One who peddles others' ideas without really understanding them. Now, you and I know that the Apostle Paul knew what he was saying, but I can't help but think that in Athens there were many, many people in this religious town that had so many different gods and deities, there were many people who tried to come in and impress others with their knowledge or with a new idea, and we'll see that in just a minute. And so they were posers. Do you know what it's like to see somebody who's posing? They don't really have that information. I have one illustration about this, and it doesn't paint me in too dark of a light, so I'll go ahead and give it. 
But when I was in college, I had, um, uh, it was an English uh, uh, literature class. Some of you get excited when you hear the words English literature class in college. Others, you cringe a little bit and you almost start to snore immediately when you hear the words English literature class. In this particular class, everybody in the class had to take a certain assignment and give an oral report about that assignment. And there was always a time for questions and answers, hopefully, at the end of your report. So after sitting through several reports, and how good of a job can 19 and 20-year-olds do at these reports, right? I think everybody did an okay job. But then you have a time for questions at the end. And I observed several times when there were questions, and they were very, very few. And honestly, the person up front didn't really want to field too many questions most of the time. I took my opportunity when I was giving my report to go ahead and do something interesting, and I was honest about it. It didn't affect my grade at all, so don't think too poorly of me. But I was kind of a joker, and um, I decided to take a couple of friends of mine in this class, and I said, here's my report, here's my topic. When we get to the end and have the Q&A time, I'm going to give you these questions, and these were the most obscure questions about my topic that they couldn't possibly know. You know, like, say, wasn't um, Aristotle's father, wasn't he born in this country? It was a very obscure question that everybody would think, well, that's an impossible question. And, of course, I would be able to give the impossible answer. And I did two of these, and so they built a little bit. And so as we came to the time, I gave my report, and we came to questions, and my friend Jason and my friend Steve, they took their turns, raising their hands and saying, yes, and asked an impossible question, and I gave an answer to the impossible questions. And everybody, I, I think they figured it out. And I let my teacher know afterwards, yeah, we were just pulling your guy's leg. Impossible to get that kind of information. What was I doing? I was posing, right? I didn't really know that kind of detail. My friends with those questions, they were just posing for a little bit just to maybe lighten the class up some. Some of the people thought Paul was a poser. He's come across some information about some religions, and here he is, this babbler, a derogatory word, this seed picker coming in here with that information. And after some hear him, they mock him, calling him a babbler. Others hear him, and they say, hey, new gods, new gods for us. And they love that idea here in Athens. And so they decide that this message that Paul gives day after day, he kept going and he kept giving it. And just a little side note here, I think that he kept talking about the resurrection was a negative to go to the Areopagus, which is the council that would hear him. I think when he mentioned the, resur the resurrection, some are saying, oh man, that's not gonna go anywhere with those big shooters, those big thinkers that are there. And yet, day after day, as Paul gives the message of Jesus Christ and coming to die for mankind and rising from the grave and how we can turn to him, some decide that his message is worth taking to the ruling court of the area, the Areopagus. This is what is oftentimes referred to as Mars Hill, the place where they would meet. I just heard recently, I think this is the same ruling court that actually condemned Aristotle, I'm, or no, Socrates. I'm not positive of that, so if you're a history buff, you might check it. But it's the same ruling court, I believe, that um, came up against Socrates. That's where Paul is going to give his defense. Look with me in verse 19. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. 
Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there, they would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So this is a group, a specific group of enlightened thinkers. You might say the enlightened thinkers of the world. I think that people who were brilliant would gravitate there. The center of culture the center of religion, the center of education, and they would meet to talk philosophy. And so if Paul is a poser, it's going to come out very, very quickly here. By the way, if you're a poser as a Christian and you get pressed on that, I think it will come out very, very quickly. If you're just enjoying some of the fringe benefits of Christianity, of church, and you get pressed on whether you really believe this or not, I think your true heart will be revealed. Paul would be revealed if he was posing here, but we know he's not posing. And he takes this chance to speak to this group about God, capital G, I need to say that in this setting, God and God's Son, Jesus Christ. And this sermon is what one theologian calls the best apologetic sermon ever, it's what another writer calls Paul's most famous sermon. And so let's go ahead and jump to the next point, the sermon. Notice he begins with a compliment. As we read this, he starts off with a compliment, and then he presents God in three different fashions. First of all, the God of the past as creator. Look in verse 22 with me. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said... Men of Athens, I perceive, here's the compliment, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So he tells them about the God of the past. God is the creator. He also puts in here the God of the present, about how God made them. And so they received a compliment right at the start. By the, by the way, would you guys like for me to make that adjustment in my preaching every week? Would you like for me to start with a compliment to you every week? My goodness, what a brilliant crowd we have here today. My goodness, you've come out of the woodwork from the area to come and bless us with your presence. Paul wasn't wrong to give that. I think he was very, very smart. But very quickly, his message changed because when he talks about the God of the past and the God of the present, it attacks some of their core beliefs, how God made them. And they're all there because of one man that started out, Adam. And from Adam came all of mankind. And it's not that man makes God, and that would seem kind of clear here because of all these gods they had that were made by human hands, God's lowercase g, but that God made man. And understand what he is saying. There is one statistic that reported in Athens. At one point, the population was 10,000. And I don't, know, I don't know if that was a little bit before this instance or a little bit after or right on the nose when Paul was there. But one statistic said the, uh, the population of Athens was about 10,000 people. And in that same stat, it said that for this 10,000 people, there were about 30,000 gods. That's how many gods they had. 
So it shed some light on why they would be open to this conversation and why some people were interested in this new talk. By the way, this ruling group here, they would listen to this and they could say whether a God was going to be added. And clearly there were a whole bunch that were in there, but they had a whole system set up so they could hear about a new God, this God. But remember, this God is kind of rubbing them the wrong way, isn't he? And this preacher of foreign divinities, as he was called earlier in our text, is not simply adding to the thousands of gods, but he is undoing the message of many gods. He's telling them there is only one God. And he says, you did not make him, but he made you. And so I have to believe that some of them, do you know how your shoulders kind of get tense sometimes when you, when you hear something you don't like or you're getting into a confrontation or something's going wrong? You just kind of you tense up a little bit. Maybe you have a vein that pops out somewhere. I don't, I don't know. I think my bottom lip gets tight. Is that right? My bottom lip gets tight? So some people have told me that. So if you see that, that might be a warning sign. Maybe pray for me if you see that. I don't know. It doesn't happen that often. But I have to believe in this group as they're hearing this that some people start to get a little bit tense here because it did not go along with what they wanted. And I think in our day, and I started by saying that I think Christian values are very much appreciated. And if, if that's what you do, good for you. I'm happy for you. And they'll even say, keep with that. But I think we're heading towards a day where very much so it's not. Even the popular bumper sticker that I've noted before that says coexist. Are you familiar with this bumper sticker? Coexist. Honestly, from a human point of view, doesn't that sound like a great message? I mean, doesn't it? From a human point of view, it does. But what about from Jesus when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. By the way, they, they put on that coexist bumper sticker, maybe you've seen it, what's in there that you and I appreciate and love that we've already sang about today? They put a picture of the cross right in there, right? So they want you in there, but they don't want a part, the part that starts to infringe upon them, they don't want that coming in. And Paul uses, in this brilliant sermon that he preaches, Paul uses some connection points to help them understand. And there are two connection points that he uses. We see them in other areas of the scriptures. And by the way, they are very practical for you, you, for you to use in introducing someone to Jesus Christ today. They are this. People are made in the image of God. That's one. We see that clearly taught. And the second one is all people have some awareness of the divine. And that's, people will argue with you, people will argue with you on that one that everybody has some kind of an awareness that there is a God. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above declares his handiwork. Even if someone calls themselves an atheist, and I love the line that God doesn't believe in atheists. I love that line. Even if someone calls themselves an atheist, there is within them somewhere an awareness that there is a God. It has not been completely eradicated. And that's not just because I've studied on it. It's because God's word says that. There's something within everyone. There's an, an innate, innate awareness that there is a God. Now, when we study Romans chapter one, we see that among men, there is this big push and effort to suppress that truth that there's a God that we have to answer to and that made us. But even the atheist that... Um, denies God with everything that he has, there's something within himself that's going to lead him to an awareness 
that there is a God. And so Paul begins with a commendation and a compliment, and he moves very quickly, not just to be a little bit controversial. Catch this. In just a couple of statements, Paul really undoes everything that this religious system was about. The entire religious system of Greece is undone. Paul says, there is only one God, and they were polytheistic, many gods. He says, the God does not live in a temple. I don't know what your church background is, but I hope you understand that God doesn't live in this church, in this place, except for when God's people come in here and he resides within his followers. Paul tells them, God doesn't need you to make some kind of a house and shelter over it. God doesn't live in temples like these that surround us, these thousands of gods. God is not served by human effort, and God's purpose is to draw humanity to himself. He talks about the God of the past, he talks about the God of the present, and he also talks about the God of the future. Look in verses 30 and 31. Oh, did we read the rest of it there? Let me back up. If we didn't do it already, let me go. Uh, 26, I don't want, well, you, don't, you don't want to miss any of this. Verse 26, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For, and he quotes some of their poets here, In him we live and move and have our being. And even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine is like gold or silver or stone, an image that's formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance, God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. Here's the future. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He talks about the past, he talks about the present, and he talks about the future. And I want to encourage us and you need to find out what your style might be to talk about your faith. But I want to encourage you not to sugarcoat the subject of hell. You don't need to start with hell, but you definitely need to not deny hell. I can remember a class I had a long time ago, and we were watching this famous debate in America of two people that were debating, is there a God, is there not a God? And the man who claimed to be an atheist thought he had a zinger he thought he had, this is going to be, man, I'm going to say this and this is going to undo everything. I'm going to get the whole crowd on my side. And it makes kind of sense, or it kind of makes sense. He said in this debate to this believer, this follower of Jesus, so what you're telling everyone here is, if they don't believe what you believe and they die, they're going to go to hell? Is that the zinger he wanted? And the man who is debating has such a great response he just said, yes, that's true, and then he went on. He didn't sugarcoat it. He didn't jump on it and, and go nuts, but he did not deny it, and we need to not deny this. We need to make sure that we, and people understand there is a judgment coming, and that's what Paul references here. 
And then let's look at the response in verses 32 and 33. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. And so this is the response. There were some who mocked. There were some who did delay. And then there was a third group. Let's go ahead and get to them. I'm going to give you a couple of things that you can do with this. And I hope you take this and read through it again and dwell on this. But what can you do with this beautiful portion of Scripture that we've been talking about just for this short time this morning? Well, first of all, I want, and by the way, the points are from the first verse and the last verse. So verse 16 and verse 34 have these little takeaway things that you can do. First of all, what can you do? You need to cultivate an inner longing for people who do not know God to come to God. Can I, even though we're pushing time, can I read verse 16 again for us? Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. I don't know if he was planning on preaching before his team got there. I don't know if he was enjoying a little bit of a break. I don't know what happened, but I know there was something very deep, with real, very real within Paul that led him to go and start to interact with people in the marketplace and in the synagogue and with the Epicureans and with the Stoics, and it led him going to this huge council and giving the sermon on Mars Hill. There was something within him. And brother or sister in Christ, there needs to be something within you. I'm not sure how that's gonna play out. And I can't tell you what that is. We're all built differently. I recognize that. But I feel very strongly, I think it's fair to say from God's word, there needs to be something within you that has a longing for others to know the gospel that you enjoy. And then number two, obey the Great Commission with the confidence that God's reach of grace is not limited. That statement in itself might cause some controversy between folks that want to debate the things that are not main and not plain in my opinion. Having said that, let me read verse 34 for you and I'll explain God's uh, variety here. Verse 34 says, but some men, so some refused and some delayed, and then but some men, verse 34, joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So we find the names of two people that came to Christ here. One of the individuals was a person that was on the council. This one who stood up and would judge. He was a high thinker. You didn't get a seat on that council unless you were brilliant, unless you knew philosophy, unless you could get along. And God did something in his heart with this message of the gospel that changed him forever. And so here is this one who heard the message from Paul and he accepts all the way down. And I think the implication as I've studied it out is this woman that was saved, she was just a common person in the area. And so with the same gospel presentation, someone who his IQ is maybe way up here, comes to Jesus, and someone who's just common. They come to Jesus. And do not discount what God is doing or who he is trying to reach. You just be faithful in the place that he has you. And to be complete here, Paul had a variety of tools to use, didn't he? I mean, he could go in this setting, and most of us, present company included, could not go into this setting and make this kind of defense. I don't have that tool in my toolbox. Maybe you can develop it. Maybe some of you 
just you know, you, your mind is so sharp, you could go into a setting like that and convince others and you wouldn't be seen as a poser. Paul had that tool. He also had the tool of suffering in prison and singing at midnight and rejoicing and that led to a jailer coming to Christ. Here's the point. You have a tool. I don't know what it is. Figure out what tool God has given you to connect and then allow that burden that you have for someone to know God, allow that to sharpen your tool. Be very intentional about how you use what God has given you. Be developing it because you and I are called to walk in this world living the Great Commission. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we look at this genius, the Apostle Paul, and we thank you for the compassion and the heart. And I don't know, I, I, I mean, I have to think maybe he was frightened when he came to this point, not having his team, his support group that he had called together and they had different roles, didn't have his physician, Dr. Luke, with him. And yet as he goes to this place, very clearly he's following your promptings. He goes and he is moved to preach. And Heavenly Father, we can meet these two that have kind of funny names someday when we get into your presence. I thank you for that. And I also would pray very sincerely right now that the Apostle Paul would be able to come and meet some that people in this room were led to witness to, to plant a seed or water a seed that came to Christ. And I thank you for the privilege of being fruit producers in this world. And I thank you that you are the one that does that. We're just faithful to be obedient. Thank you for Paul's obedience and thank you that we can be obedient. With heads bowed and eyes closed, go ahead and keep your eyes closed just for a moment. I'm gonna ask Ron just to play through just softly something. I want you to pray. Good chance to pray right now. God's listening, looking right into your heart. If you're here today and you're a poser, you're not really a Christian and someday there will be a judge who won't be fooled I would encourage you today ask him to save you ask God to become your Lord and Savior because of the work done on the cross by Jesus Christ we have forgiveness if we will come to him everybody else you pray pray maybe for the tool that you might need to sharpen or for that inward longing, someone you might need to pray for. Pray for them by name right now.